Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello, good afternoon. You are listening to Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, just a word of warning. mess, aren't you? I'm not very tall, either. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Hello, welcome to Bums on Seats. My name is Yossi Osman and joining me on the show today we have Rowan Lamb. Hello. Bridget Bradshaw. Hi there. And Christian Foreman. Hello. We have a bumper show today brimming with cinematic beauties. Saoirse Ronan and Margot Robbie play royal slash rival cousins in Mary, Queen of Scots. M. Night Shyamalan's Unbreakable and Split come together in Glass. There's a thoughtful study of a father's midlife crisis in Netflix drama The Land of Steady Habits. And Christian Bale takes an almost unrecognisable turn as Dick Cheney in political comedy drama Vice. Plus, with the announcement of 2019's Oscar, ugh, Oscar nominees on Tuesday, we'll be giving our thoughts um, on some of the nominees as well as those films sinfully snubbed. So we've got loads to talk about today, but we're going to start with a little trip to the 16th century. Queen Elizabeth, your cousin Mary has returned to take up her throne in Scotland. The Queen! My dear cousin Elizabeth, I hope we might meet in person, that I might embrace you. But ruling side by side, we must do so in harmony, not through a treaty drafted by men lesser than ourselves. My dear cousin, let our nations cherish each other as we would, two kingdoms united. Do not play into their hands. Our hatred is precisely what they hope for. I know your heart has more within it than the men who counsel you. You would do well to watch your words. I will not be scolded by my inferior. Your inferior? Are you afraid, Henry? Our first film up for discussion today is Josie Rourke's directorial debut, Mary, Queen of Scots. The year is 1561 and Mary, played by Saoirse Ronan, has arrived on Scottish soil to take her rightful place on the throne. With meddling politicians, a stubborn half-brother and a country still battling over religious loyalties, she faces turbulent times ahead. Over the border, in Tudor England, Elizabeth I, played by Margot Robbie, finds herself fascinated by her charismatic cousin, but unsure of the threat to her own crown. In a world dominated by men, these two women must decide how to play the royal game, as friends, as family, and perhaps as foes. So, Rowan, we'll come to you on this one. So, Mary, Queen of Scots, we all pretty much know what happens to her. Um, she's quite a famous Tudor figure. Is there enough in this film to keep us interested in her story? I definitely think so. Um, the parts of this film that I really enjoyed were the the stories of the interpersonal relationships that were happening perhaps sort of in the chambers or the bedrooms of uh, where these people lived, both with uh, Mary Stuart and Queen Elizabeth I. I thought that all of those smaller moments were really the ones where the power of this film rest. Um, as you say, we all sort of know what happened uh, in the in history. So 
those larger moments, I think, are um, sort of almost a backdrop to the smaller human moments. And Josie Rourke, she is... Um Actually, this is her first film that she's that she's directed. She's actually from a theatre background. And um, Bridget, do you think that this is noticeable in the way that she directs Mary Queen of Scots? And if it is, is that a bad thing? Uh, when I was watching the film, one of the things that I, I felt about it was it was almost Shakespearean with the, the wit and interplay between the characters and some of the more theatrical moments about the way people might drop a veil and step through time. Uh, and I, had, I hadn't realised Josie was a, Josie Rourke was a theatrical director, but it mm. really makes sense in terms of the, um, the textures and the rhythms and the sort of poetry that she's managed to bring to some of the pacing. Um, in contrast, Lady Macbeth, which is also a great film by by a, a theatrical director, and he took it the the other direction. He was all, um, we've got to have very long takes because that's how people act and, and not doing shortcuts. Whereas um, with, again, with uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, at the beginning, especially when you're learning about Mary and you're learning about Elizabeth and what's going on and the, the similarity between the struggles they're facing, um, the way it's cut together and they, they sort of almost overlap. So you're, you're really seeing how tangled these two women's stories are. That's a good point because their relationship, well, historically, was, was quite interesting. They were both queens they were cousins and you can see in the film that there, there's a sense of um you know uh loyalty to each other but in the background there is this kind of threat that that mary poses to elizabeth how do we think and this is partly on the performances of the two leading actors Cersei ronan and um margot robbie how do we think that comes across is it a, a realistic portrayal do is it is it a bit too soap opera perhaps what do we think I uh, I quite I quite like the soap opera of it. As I said, I think there <laughs> um, there were it felt like caricatures to me a little. Um, mm. This is not a portrayal of Elizabeth the first that I think we've seen on screen before. Um, the big the big uh, performance or the big films about Queen Elizabeth the first that I can think of are the ones with Kate Blanchett in, and she plays a very different um, Elizabeth. Um, she does, yes. And uh, <laughs> um, I thought that, uh, yeah, I thought Margot Robbie's performance as Elizabeth I especially was was very effective, really powerful. Do we get enough of her in the film? I don't think so. I w all the time she was on the screen, I was thinking, this is this is the best part of this film, and I wish there was more of her in it. And she was managing to sort of throb with power, but still give a very restrained performance, mm. which was which was interesting. This amazing undercurrent of sadness to her mm. performance, which mm. even when she was being powerful, you know, she wasn't pretending to be powerful, you know, faking it till she makes it. She was a powerful woman, but this undercurrent of sadness and sort of melancholy, which I thought was just really well done. She appears very vulnerable at times. This a scene in particular I quite liked was the one where she sees the... Um, the fall and then mm. um and then she kind of imagines herself in her, sh her shadow 
pregnant and yeah. there's just a look on her face and it's just I was like I was sold on Margot Robbie at that point because <laughs> I have to I have to admit when I first saw the casting I thought Margot Robbie Elizabeth the first no way <laughs> and then I saw the trailer and they were like oh I was like oh she's done her nose a little bit to look different like I, I'm not buying this and then when I watched the film she probably was the best thing in it but I am also team Saoirse a bit because I know you didn't quite <laughs> like her performance but I thought she was also very very good. I thought there, I I thought she, her performance was fine. I guess I didn't like the character. I suppose is really what I, the problem I had. I I thought the character was a little bit bland, a little bit generic. Obviously, again, very powerful. And and the scenes where she was standing up to this just procession of men trying to tell her what to do, and every single time she battered them back, battered them back. Very good, but there's just something about the character I didn't like. Mm. I, I I thought she was great. I mean, there was almost, uh, with her, it was quite modern viewpoints that mm. she was holding, which one um, complaint about the film I've heard is that it doesn't really square with what a practising Catholic would think at the time. <laughs> but her attitude, it was, it was almost like punk rock, mm. the... the <laughs> power that she brought to it and we have to remember this is in the 16th century so attitudes were a little different mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but do we think kind of matching that with modern sensibilities in terms of how they talked about the sort of feminist aspects of these two women in this men's world did that come across um what's the word i'm looking for did it seem sincere or were they like we're just we're just throwing this in for to make it suitable for modern audiences um i felt the attitude to women and power was one of the um underlying one, one of the most core parts of the film mm. because it's all about how you take power how people respond to you having power and even if you manage it which both uh, mary and elizabeth did very well you've still got all these people who really want to know when you're going to get married and have a baby ideally a boy so that they can take over mm. and that's how it was you know elizabeth the yeah. first constantly throughout her her reign, you know, people were panicking because she wasn't married and she didn't have a son. Um, so I think that, you know, that came across um, really well. While we're talking about the kind of the, the male influences in this film, uh, we, just before the show, we were discussing a couple of the characters. So Lord Darnley, who is um, Mary's first husband. Second husband. Uh, second husband, sorry, after... That's very true, Ronan, thank you. Um, I just called you Ronan. Rowan, thank you. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so her second husband, um, a little bit caricature, perhaps? He, he did have a, a comedy villain moustache, that's for sure. He was slightly over the top. Um, I, I sort of... I, I liked the character because he was so cartoonishly villainous. Mm. Um, obviously, I wouldn't have liked him as a person. <laughs> but, but he wasn't that villainous, actually. Well, yeah, he was sort of... He seemed to be puppeted by men, other men in the background, but certainly, I think, towards the end of the film, he has few redeeming qualities. Hmm. He doesn't do bad things, but he's not the person he portrays himself as to Mary. Mm. So once he gets into power, things change. Mm. Yeah. Well, for me, the most standoutish person in that film that really every scene he was in I was really taken away from the film was probably David Tennant, who plays this... Um, He's a priest, isn't he? Scottish a minister. Scot a Scottish yeah. minister, and he's kind of always uh, saying all these horrible things about Mary to audiences, and he's got this big beard and these 
raving eyes and it just it just was a bit too pantomime villain for me I couldn't quite couldn't quite deal with it um but otherwise I think you know this is this is the tale of these two women perhaps not enough Elizabeth the first in in, in <laughs> Rowan's eyes um but they do lead the film very well and I think I think we'd all agree that it is it's worth going to see yeah it's been getting some mixed reviews it has I feel like it's been unfairly unfairly maligned I think it's a, a really good film that's worth a watch yeah and there are some beautiful shots of Scotland I think absolutely really stunning okay so Mary Queen of Scots opened last Friday and it's showing at all three Cambridge cinemas and it's a certificate 15 um, still to come, we've got loads to talk about. Uh, we're going to be discussing the latest Netflix drama, The Land of Steady Habits, and we will also be talking later about Vice, uh, the film about um, Vice President Dick Cheney. But now it's time to look behind the glass. The three of you think you have extraordinary gifts, like something out of a comic book. I've developed an effective treatment for this disorder. The light will force a different identity to take over. Por favor, senora. I want my headphones back. Step away from the controls now, little doctor. Can't beat the beast! So you're not going to shake my hand and let me walk out of here? <laughs> Good for you. Do you believe you are an avenging angel, partner? I believe. I have to get out of here before he gets out. They are contained. They always underestimate the mastermind. What have you done, Elijah? Shyamalan's Assemble, following on from 2000's Unbreakable and 2016's Split. Glass sees Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson reunited and joined by James McAvoy, reprising his role as Kevin Wendell Crumb. In this superhero thriller, Willis's David Dunn uses his supernatural abilities to track down Crumb. A fight takes them onto the street and lands them both in a mental institution where Jackson's Elijah Price, Dunn's enemy with the pseudonym Mr. Glass, is waiting. And a lot follows. Um, Christian, we've all seen this one, so we can all we can all uh, have a good chat here. Uh, is this glass half empty or is it half full? Well, this is an interesting one because, like the the film you just talked about, it's received a lot of mixed reviews online, and audiences have been very split. Um, pardon the pun. Oh, <laughs> this has already been full of puns, Christian. Don't worry. <laughs> I think it's a bit of both. I think sometimes it's half full and sometimes it's half empty. Um, and, you know, it's a very flawed and convoluted film and the pacing's a little off and sometimes Shyamalan very underestimates his audience. Um, but at the same time, it's very thoughtful and enjoyable. Um, and I had a good time watching this. And, um, yeah, although predictable in some areas, it's probably a lot less predictable than a lot of other, you know, superhero films that we've seen over the past few years. So, yeah, I think it's a very good film. Hmm. I mean, have we all seen Unbreakable and Split? Because I've seen Unbreakable, I've not seen Split. Mm, I've seen, yeah, all of them. How does it follow on from, from that narrative? Because I know people were waiting and waiting and waiting for ages for a sequel to Unbreakable because that film is, is very popular. How does this level up, Rowan? Um, well, I think there's definitely been a case of diminishing returns across this trilogy. Um, 
Unbreakable, as you said, is 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 hugely popular. Still, I would argue not necessarily a very good film, but entertaining nonetheless. Um, Split was an interesting film. I mean, James McAvoy, and he does it again in this one, is is putting on an acting masterclass for people who like sort of that not quite over the top demonstrative style of acting. Um, He is switching between characters, arguing with himself and that kind of thing really effectively in both of these films. And then this one does tie everything up a little bit and, and, and finishes on a on a particular note that Shyamalan was obviously aiming for all the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think, yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly not in the same class as Unbreakable, I'm afraid. I, I think one of the downfalls of this film is that it, it had a very difficult job of, of pleasing Unbreakable and Split fans, but also trying to please newcomers to the franchise, because I don't imagine that the majority of people going into this film would have seen both Unbreakable and Split. And, yeah, I think... For the people that had seen both the films, it spends a very good chunk, a good chunk of the film explaining, retelling those stories, and I don't think it gets going until halfway through. Mm. And so I think fans of, of Split and Unbreakable would be quite frustrated at how slow paced this is, mm. um, and and at the same time, newcomers to this will be very confused by some of the some of the the story that has transferred over to this, and yeah. um, won't have got the the impact that it was probably intended to have. Okay. Uh, yes, I've seen Unbreakable. I haven't managed to see Split yet, and I spent the first half hour being quite confused yeah, as to what could, the horde was that. and who, how much the audience is supposed to know and how much the characters well, are meant to the, know the about it. The problem, I thought as well, that James McAvoy in The Horde already has his, his own film. He's had his own origin story, and he gets a, a, a lot of the screen time, the majority of the screen time in this, for a film that's called Glass. Um, this isn't Split too, and I think, um, I think the, there was a disproportionate amount of screen time between the three main characters because I think this film was marketed as a, a three three headed collaborative mm. um, ensemble, yeah. of, um, like a, like an Avengers type where everyone's coming together. But the majority of the time was spent with James McAvoy's character, and then um, Elijah um, Price. Price. Samuel Jackson's um, character doesn't really. S- have any, have anything to say until about an hour in. Yeah. Considering it's called Glass, as you say. Glass, yeah. yeah. And then Bruce Willis's character, although great and unbreakable, I, I think he just was asleep during this. I think <laughs> he, didn't, he doesn't really have the same presence on screen that he used to have, especially not next to someone like James McAvoy's character, who yeah. just was phenomenal and phenomenal. When you have one character whose characterization necessitates them talking all the time, yeah. and then Bruce Willis's character is set up as someone who doesn't speak. <laughs> yes. He just it, didn't. He, the, the balance isn't there. It just didn't seem, particularly because these characters were meant to balance each other out. Exactly. Right? That was the whole point, the, the good versus it's the yin to the yang. And I just don't think um, Bruce Willis was his uh, James McAvoy's yang in this order. No. <laughs> Getting the paycheck. That's what Bruce Willis was doing. Um, I have a question. So uh, M. Night Shyamalan, uh, he's, let's say he's a very ambitious director, doesn't always... Uh, realise these ambitions perhaps and he's been panned for many of his recent films I wonder whether people have just gone to town on Glass because it's an M. Night Shyamalan film and it's kind of the the, the thing to just go off on him or is, or is, is the panning deserved? Uh, well I, I think I said this before the show to you guys I, I think it's time well, I might be playing into your hands here, Yossi, because I feel like it's time we all admitted that M. Night Shyamalan 
is an at-best mediocre filmmaker. He has some amazing story ideas, but I think he fails to write them down and fails to get them on film. Um, I can sort of see that, yes, this is yet another Shyamalan film, and let's let's all have a go at him, but I do feel like maybe he deserves it. <laughs> but can we not at least admire his attempt here to Absolutely. take a genre like the superhero genre and try and do something a little bit different with it? Uh, yes, but I, I think it if it had all been wrapped up within 10 years, the trilogy, I think it would have worked a lot better. But in the last year or so, we've had so many superhero deconstruction origin stories. We've had the Spider-Verse. It feels like something that um, is is behind the times almost. Mm. Okay. I'm so, I'm trying I'm trying to defend I didn't even like the film I'm, try, I'm trying to defend M Night Shyamalan. My, one of my favorite parts of the film was when the the three films came together. But I I spent my time wondering whether this was intent like whether this was an afterthought or whether he had this film Glass in mind 19 years ago when he made Unbreakable. Mm. If he did, I think that's that's such vision and ambition and that should be celebrated. But if it was just an afterthought and he was just kind of you know, rewriting the stories to kind of make them come together. I strongly suspect that the latter is the case. Really? The Split and um, Unbreakable were made by two different dis- companies, distri- distributed by two different distributors. The rights are actually a, a pain in the neck to get together to make this film. And had he had the foresight, he might have not done that. So, yeah. yeah I think when they were making Split, the, the, they were in a, in a writing room and they thought, why not, you know? That seemed, that's my suspicion. Uh, they didn't have a... Because, you know, we, we all need a surprise ending with Shyamalan. Well, we that's what I was going to ask about. <laughs> like, what, what do we think here? Because, you know, it's an M. Night Shyamalan film. There's always going to be a twist at some point. What Do we get the payoff of this twist? Is it... it or did we see it coming from a mile off? And... and yeah, what do we think about that? Because that that's his kind of go-to. Most of his films will have some kind of twist halfway through the film or, or a bit later. I like the twist. What I what I don't like about his twists and most of his dialogue is how he just over-explains everything. He 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 just he goes on and on like it's it, he he's not a director that goes by the sh- show not tell what is it he does the opposite he, he over explains everything which I don't appreciate as an audience. I think he should just trust his audience a bit more because it, it really pays off more. Mm. And what about the ending? There's been a lot of talk about the ending on the well on the Twitter sphere at least. Um, I like the way everything is so. Um, well, he, he tries to make it ambiguous about whether people have superpowers or not, or if it's all in their mind. And a lot of the um, film work is sort of CCTV. It's, it's things that mm. aren't really mm. in your face. And I think. Um, coming down on one side of the fence or the other once he's managed to get all the characters questioning whether they do have superpowers or not mm. uh, was a bit of a disappointment to, to get that yeah I think that. the last 30 minutes was was very disappointing and you go out of the cinema feeling shortchanged a bit and I yeah. think if you I think with most films if you had a medi- mediocre film with a good ending then you go out feeling that it was better than it was but to go out on a, such a low note I think people will be I think that's why Probably the audiences are split on this. But I do like a good a good heist and escape, and they did manage yeah. to pull that off. The heist yes. part was brilliant. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So something to like there. <laughs> okay. All right. So Glass is still in the cinemas, and you can see it um, at the View Cinema and also at the Light. It is a certificate fifteen. <laughs> Thank you.
And that lovely piece of music that we've just been listening to is from the score of a film called The Rider, which you may or may not have seen. It's directed by Chloe Zhao. Um, and there is a little bit of a, a reason why we're, we're playing uh, this. We're about to talk about the Oscar nominations. Um, and very interestingly, uh, and perhaps a bit sadly, no female directors nominated in the best director category and The Rider is one of the films that a lot of um, critics and people in the know are saying should have been considered um, in the Oscars. Now I know it's all pomp and ceremony and you know winning an Oscar does not mean you've had the best film of the year but it is a little bit fun to talk about <laughs> what we've got or what we've not got in the nomination so I'm going to ask you guys for a couple of thoughts just for some halfway through the show chat uh, let's have a look at um, best picture first and then we can go in the, a bit more into the best director talk uh, Black Panther, Black Landsman, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favourite, Green Book, Roma, A Star Is Born and Vice. What have we seen? What did we like? What didn't we like? I'm... <laughs> we have no I'll, thoughts. I'll jump on oh, this one. No. I've got, I, I am slightly disappointed to see Black Panther getting a nomination here. I, I, we had some sort of controversy earlier in the year when the Academy started talking about a best popular film category or something like that i don't quite remember the uh, the the precise name but they were talking about recognizing the blockbuster sort of popcorn kind of film mm -hmm. which i do think that black panther is squarely within that genre but i honestly don't think it's even the best marvel film that was released this year let alone the best one of the best films um it it, it yeah i don't quite understand that one all of the others i haven't seen a couple of them but um certainly uh, Black Klansman, I'm really happy that that got a nomination because I do feel like that film might have dropped out of the public consciousness a little bit. So mm -hmm. I'm really happy to see that featured there. Yeah, I loved Black Klansman. I'm really excited to see Roma in there yeah. as well. I went to see that. At, it was the closing film for Cambridge Film Festival. It was a secret film, right? Yeah, it and was. I've been thinking about that every week since, I think. It was fantastic. And it's, is this the first... I might be wrong. Is this the first Netflix? I think it is. So, Roma, everyone must see it. it I've, I have been defending Roma every <laughs> single day of my life since I've seen it. I genuinely think it's a masterpiece. It's on Netflix. If you haven't seen it, we would all, I think, strongly I would highly recommend, recommend yes. it if, if we've seen it. Sorry, I don't I think everyone's here seen it. But anyway, um, you must. Uh, it's absolutely wonderful. And I think Alfonso Cuaron might be a shoe-in, perhaps, for Best Director there as well. And I'm also really pleased to see in the Best Actress category that the main, um, the, the protagonist from Roma, Yelitsa Aparicio, I think is how you say her name, is, is nominated in the Best Actress ca category and she had never acted before this really? film. Really? I didn't yes, know that. first time. So I'm absolutely thrilled with that. I think it's just wonderful and I, I, you can tell which one is Yeah, it's uh, lovely that favorite. she got a nomination but she doesn't stand a chance against Olivia Colman. She doesn't. She doesn't. <laughs> we all know who's winning that one. Um, but it's nice to see her nominated. That's Indeed. all I mean. And um, the thing, ho sorry. hopefully, mean that we'll see her in more films as well. Yes, definitely. And, and there's such a, a, a range of different sorts of films. Mm. In, so I've got my, my glasses on now, so I can I can read the list. Oh, and I can join in. <laughs> Yay! Please do. <laughs> Uh, yeah, if they were talking about popular films, you've got popular films in there, you've got art house films in there. It's it's quite a an odd odd spread. Yeah, but that's quite mm. you know that that 
is a good thing. Um, I think as well, I mean... The f- so we talked about the favourite on the last Bums on Seats, didn't we? Who we did. you, you were on the I, show. I, I, yeah. I watched the favourite. I can't remember. You were a fan, right? I was, I was a big fan. Yeah. Yeah, particularly with Olivia Coleman's performance and the rest of the the rest of the cast. And so it's good to see that they're getting recognition for that. Yeah, and also um, Emma Stone and oh, I've forgotten her name. Rachel, Rachel, Rachel Vice. Vice, both in the supporting category. So wonderful for the three sort of. Well, I think they're all kind of leading, but it's it's a funny way they've categorised it, isn't yeah. it? Because I would have considered those to be three leading actresses. That's what that I'm film. thinking. That's yeah. what Olivia Colman, whenever she gets interviewed, when they call her this, you're the, you're the lead here, and she always could correct them and go, no, no, I'm the core star yeah. of a three-way lead, really. Yeah. So. And her agent probably is shaking their fist, going, do I do nothing for you? <laughs> <laughs> I get you All this work yes, I put yes. in for you. True enough. <laughs> um, so, as mentioned before, when we were playing the Chloe Zhao, uh, the, the school from The Rider, directed by Chloe Zhao, no, not a single female nominee in uh, the Best Directing category. So, we've got Black Landsman by Spike Lee. Also, I'm, I mean, I'm pretty happy about that one. <laughs> Cold War, which I think is a good shout as well. Pavel Pavlikowski, I think, I hope I've said that right. The Favourite, Yorgos Lanthimos, Roma, Alfonso Cuaron, and Vice by Adam McKay. And just before the show, we had a quick chat about some films that we've seen that we think really, you know, the, the director should have been consider- considered here. So one of which is You Were Never Really Here, directed by Lynn Ramsey. Uh, Bridget, you've seen that one, Yes. Uh, yes, uh, that was an amazing film. It was uh, especially the sound, and, and it, it was it had a really strange texture to the film. And and hearing the the sound in a cinema with surround speakers, the way the noises would come in from peculiar directions, it was one of the most um, powerful and affecting films I've seen in the cinema. And I'm astonished to not see it listed. Mm. It was one of my favourite films of last year. I just thought it was a stunning piece of work. It's one of those films that I've said you, you actually feel it, like every second of it, you really feel the film. I know that sounds ridiculous, but that's that's how I described it to people. And, you know, Joaquin Phoenix, who's just amazing in basically everything that he's in, but in this film, he's just his presence is... It's just wonderful. I can't... If you've not seen You Were Never Really Here, that's another one I think we would we would recommend. But also, Bridget, you were talking about Leave, Leave no, no Trace, Trace which I De- haven't seen. Deborah so. Granick. No, it's, a, it's an, again, it's an amazing film. It's a father and daughter, and they're trying to live off-grid um, and, and not, not be... It, you gradually find this out. And it's a terribly sad film because everyone is trying to help them and they just can't... The, the, the father and the daughter are trying to sort of go go their own ways and and be be self-contained, but they they just can't believe that people will really help them. And it was just beautiful in the details and the performances. So what, another one to to go and seek out if if you haven't seen that one. So yeah, I mean, there's loads and loads we could talk about here with all these nominations, but we, we haven't really got the time. So I think it's time to move on. Um, with Roma dominating uh, the Oscar nominations and available to watch on Netflix, and seriously, if you haven't seen it, please, please go and see it. Um, you can watch it from your couch. It's now time to look at another Netflix uh, film. So this is The Land of Steady Habits. Forwards we go backwards just the same What happened to you? Like quit your fancy job? Been born a hundred times Something had to change Made the same 
Played uh, by Ben Mendelsohn, Anders is a troubled father who, after leaving his wife, befriends a drug addict teen played by Charlie Tahan. Their friendship, which leads to reckless behaviour and regrettable actions, causes Anders to question his role as a father and, indeed, as a person. Um... Bridget, this this is quite an interesting one, just in terms of of the characters that it's looking at, particularly um, Anders here. Um, is he? Everybody is talking about Ben Mendelsohn. Is he the only really good thing about this film, or is there a lot else to appreciate? Um, I, I bought all the characters. They're all really nicely developed as people. Um, even if they, you just feel you know them, they 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 feel real, and it's really fun to see Ben not as a tooth-snarling villain, which he so often is, but being someone a lot more subtle and doing the, uh, I've had a midlife crisis and I've thrown away my marriage and wrecked everything and I'm sad, um, but not have the audience feel they have to be immediately sympathetic to him, although he still, his character still allows some of that. In a way, that kind of that narrative of sort of midlife crisis is something that's been treated in many films, um, actually often with with the female um with female characters so a is it kind of interesting to see it from a male perspective b is it a bit cliche christian i'm looking at you is a cliche i I would say i've seen this film done a lot of times with men as well but they tend to be younger than than he is in this film they tend to be mid-20s coming of age type Mm -hmm. films rather than yeah this midlife crisis yeah um what was the question is a cliche yeah Mm. No, I don't think it is because it's 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 relatable, right? It's very real, like what Bridget was saying. It's very real characters here, and they don't do it in a cliched way. It does feel like um, the depth of these characters is something that I think is the strongest about this film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we the the main character Anders, he's not a very likable person. I don't think we're supposed to root for him. Right, Bridget? Did you root for him? Um, <laughs> I, I don't think well, anyone was really likeable. I, I, I was unsure. Were, yeah. And so he's, he's, he's a very privileged, wealthy, upper-class um, businessman who throws away his life to pursue boyhood fantasies of, of you know, one-night stands and, mm. and well, taking drugs with teenagers. Um, but at the same time, there's a, there's a sadness to him mm. that... And, you know, there's quite there's a lot of overwhelming overwhelming things happening in his life that you just can't help relate to. I think, and you can't you feel for him. And I think, yeah, it's very it's not cliched the way it does that. It feels very real, and I like I like the style of it. And other characters really supposed to be likable anyway? Are we supposed to engage with them by liking them? No, I think the best characters are probably the ones that you don't like, to be honest. Mm. I think for all of them, we've got the possibility there that we could like them, but they're, they're all, they've all got problems. They're all doing difficult things, making decisions with, about their lives and other people's lives that we might not agree with, but we've still got the, the hope that they can, they can all find happiness. Yeah. And that's well, all he's trying to do, he's just trying to find happiness. He's, he's doing his best to connect to people throughout this film whether that's romantically or through with his relationship with his with his son or mm, his wife mm. or these these teenagers that he has it forms a relationship with and you just see him failing every time you see him just unable to connect and and um yeah it's just this underlying sadness throughout this and, and 
That, but it's, it's not a melodramatic no, fate, it's destiny thing. It's it's just a that's the way people's lives it's, are. I like those films that just take a snapshot of somebody's life over a period of time. Nothing, nothing, you know, too exciting happens, and they just present it to an audience, and we just left to just just observing and and making our own decisions about these characters. And I really like, I really appreciate those films that do that but, without like spoon feeding us. Yeah. But, but plenty of exciting things did happen. It was full of drama and tragedy. Yes, that's true. That's true. Did, was. Was there a bit too much of that? Did it kind of veer with some of the things onto a little bit more absurdity rather than tragedy, perhaps? Maybe halfway through the film, I think there's a there's a thing that happens which I won't spoil, but it it does, you know, change what the film is about. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I I would have liked to have stayed longer with the relationship side of things in, mm-hmm. because I think some of the storylines got fell to the wayside a bit halfway through when this this incident happened in the film. And so, yeah, I, I like the I like the slow, steady pace of it the most. That the the dialogue between the characters is brilliant. Yeah, um, I think you've both touched on this, but I think it'd be good to go into a bit more detail. Um, there's lots of different characters, all with their own troubles in this film. Everybody's pretty troubled. <laughs> um, I wonder if it's kind of all seamlessly pulled together or if it's a bit choppy in places, if, if every character gets the right... Because at the end of the day, it is Anders story, but when you've got other characters who've got their troubles and everything going on in their lives, does it all kind of even out or is it a bit, is it a bit haphazard in places, perhaps? There were a couple of um, moments that struck me in this film and this was about conversations between adults and children and the adults for the most part can't communicate well with their own children but there's a couple of times when somebody else's parent will talk to the other person's child Mm. and those conversations although sometimes they're they're quite at cross purposes they're speaking at each other rather than to each other they can be quite enlightening about what actually is important and they can make people's lives fit together in a a more interesting way Mm. um I feel like the the director Nicole. I really hope I'm saying her name right. Holof Chainer. Does anyone? I don't. I don't. Well, no one seems to know. Uh, but I'm hoping that that's how uh, her name is pronounced. She's she's kind of observing. Um, that's the sort of feel that you get for the film. But because they've all got a lesson to learn, particularly Anders towards the end, and him questioning who he is, and 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 all that sort of thing. Does it ever feel like it's a bit of a kind of She's, it's a teacher giving us a lesson or is it just more where it's authentic and we're just watching it and, and empathising? I would say it felt less like the director was was telling us inf- this information but the, it was the characters that were asking these questions. I know that's the director by proxy. Yeah, but, of course, yeah. Um, but it did feel like it was the characters were, sort of, were, were real enough that we were going on this journey with them. It wasn't, mm. yeah, we weren't being told how to feel. That's mm. why I came out of it, really. Yeah. Yeah, good. And um, oh, sorry, Bridget. Yeah, and and this is her first feature with a male lead. All the, all the rest of them have been female leads. So it's been quite interesting to see the way she's approached the midlife male midlife crisis story. Mm, yeah, that's quite an interesting aspect of it as well. And um, they clearly work 
quite well together, her and, and Ben Mendelssohn, who gives a, a very good performance as Anders. So I think if he does a, a more films like this with these types of performances, where he's not just playing the generic bad guy, he could s- do some serious work here. I think he could be an Oscar contender in a few years' mm. time. Ben, if you're listening, I'm sure you are. Uh, <laughs> there's a note there. Um, so yes, The Land of Steady Habits, um, I think we've got a positive uh, positive reviews here, so very much recommended. Um, it's on Netflix, so again, one you can watch on your sofa or wherever you feel comfortable. It is a certificate 15. And we are finishing today's show uh, with a look at Republican Vice President Dick Cheney in Adam McKay's Vice. I can handle the more mundane jobs overseeing bureaucracy, military, energy, and uh, foreign policy. Yeah, right. I like that. When you have power, People will always try to take it from you, always. Are you even more ruthless than you used to be? So we gonna do this thing or what? I mean, is this happening? I believe we can make this work. Hot <laughs> damn. Okay, Rowan, it's you and me on this one. I think we've got some differing opinions. Um, so, a lot... A lot of attention on Vice because of the performances. I'd say Christian Bale as Dick Cheney, Sam Rockwell as uh, George W. Bush, who's probably my favourite uh, character in the whole film. Um, is it too much about the characters and not mu- enough about the substance of the story? Well, that's an interesting question. I think the story is the characers in a certain sense. Um, sorry, the performances, perhaps, oh, not beg the your characters. Pardon, my the bad. Sorry. Yeah. So. Well, yes, obviously a lot of attention is being um, given to Christian Bale's performance. I feel like he is... I'm no fan of Christian Bale, really, but I think he's fantastic in this. He's an actor who always throws himself physically into a role that he um, is given. So, you know, you, you look back to... He went from The Machinist to Batman in in a year um, and has bounced his weight around and bounced his physical appearance around so much that I feel like that can only that will only ever get attention uh, mm-hmm. that kind of um, yep. sort of method acting if you like um, but I think in this particular film the strength the depth of the of the rest of the cast um, really I think is is worth looking at yep. and really worth commenting on because um, Amy Adams is portrays an incredibly complex character who who at first seems like uh, your typical politician's wife, and then you see the sort of the work she's doing in the background and the the sacrifices she's making. Really interesting character. I thought Lynn Cheney was um, was uh, an interesting woman who I didn't know anything about until I watched this film. Um, Steve Carell as Donald Rumsfeld and Sam Rockwell as George W. Bush are probably the two other standout performances, as Absolutely, you pointed out. Yeah. But I just want to point, just want to throw a. a, a Props to my boy Eddie Marson. I will watch sure. anything in with him in it. I think he is magnificent. He he. When it, whenever I see him on the screen, it just makes me smile. I think he's fantastic in this, and he's only in it a little bit, mm, but mm. I I really love that actor. Uh, but yeah, the depth of the, uh, the 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 cast is is really impressive. I think. And a lot of them, I know we're half come back onto the Oscars, but a lot of them probably rightly nominated for acting Oscars: well, Bale, Adams, and Rockwell. Yeah, I I feel like. 
I think Amy Adams is going to be disappointed. Again? Um, again. I mean, how many times know, has poor well, Amy Adams been nominated? She's an actress of supreme quality who, yeah, has been overlooked. Um, I think Sam Rockwell... I feel like Sam Rockwell's portrayal got attention over Steve Carell's role mm. because Sam Rockwell is playing more of a comedy role in this in this film. He mm-hmm. He is playing... George W. Bush, who is a caricature of his own self anyway. Yeah. Um, whereas Steve Carell's portrayal of Donald Rumsfeld, I felt, was perhaps a little bit more nuanced. Yeah. Um, yeah. And But I do think that Christian Bale may win. He for, may, he for, may. Uh, for Dick Cheney. I think he... It, I, I saw this film last night and I immediately went home and looked at some YouTube videos of Dick Cheney speaking, which... Oh, I've not done that. No, okay. I, and it's fascinating. Yeah. It's really incredible how close his mannerisms his the way he bends his mouth and oh it's it's really a fantastic fantastic performance excellent and um you're talking about steve carell he's just carrying on with these really incredible roles i think he's really growing into his own um so yeah a lot to appreciate there now one thing i want to ask about is is this is an although very different to mary queen of scots this is another telling of of history Mm. um and it's it's very recent history, and a lot of us will remember the years of when Cheney was vice president to to George Bush, and we may have some opinions on, on <laughs> you know whatever your political leanings. But is there a little bit of a danger when you kind of play with this history using the sort of tone and the sort of comedic effects that? Um, that Vice does here. Are we overlooking some of the more serious angles of of the Cheney years? I think that's a perfectly reasonable criticism to make against the film. I happen to think that some of the best satire can be uncomfortable for the people making it, almost. You have to almost admit that the person you're satirising isn't all evil, Otherwise, you're, what you're making is an assassination. Mm. And I think that there are portions of Christian Bale's performance and the rest of the family especially um, that made me sympathise with Dick Cheney a little bit. I, I quite... There were, there were micro moments in that film where I actually liked the man. I, mm-hmm. I thought he, he gave a really clever performance because I thought sometimes I thought he was quite funny. There's sometimes I thought he was being brave in his decision-making and then straight away, bam... You're like, no, it was awful what mm, this man mm-hmm, did. Mm-hmm. It was callous and heartless the way he treated his daughters. It was, you know, the consequences of little decisions he made. The editing of this film really, I thought, brought that home, the way that he would make an offhand remark and it would immediately cut to the consequences of what that decision were. And they were horrific. Mm-hmm. And then it would cut back and he would take another bite of his donut. <laughs> and I think that... What this film really is saying, I think it, it is an absolute indictment of that period of political history, but it's acknowledging that that I feel like it, it wears its partisanship on its sleeve, and yeah. I, I think that's actually a, a bonus in this film. Yeah, I happen to share the filmmakers' politics, I think, so obviously I'm yeah. on their side. If I were um, a Republican, I'd probably find this film a little less powerful. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, I do really agree with you, and I, I don't think he's, you know, it's actually good that there are moments there where you do sort of like 
these yeah. characters. I think that's important. And I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not trying to say that McKay is simply sort of making light of the serious crimes here. I don't think he's doing that no. at all. But for me, I just wasn't sure that the satire came along strongly enough. So I'm a big fan of, of shows like Veep or the thick of it, mm. where all the people in these TV shows are monstrous politicians, but it's, it's cleverly satirical, in my opinion. This, to me, sometimes it just felt a bit like the filmmakers were a bit pleased with themselves and just... Oh. <laughs> I don't, you know, <laughs> no, that, that's the kind of impression I got. You're certainly right about that. They yeah. are very pleased with themselves. There's a, there's a moment in the middle where they... Well, the opening text, the the yellow on black text that opens the film where they talk about the fact that Dick Cheney is a famously private man sets out their stall about what they're hoping to do and the tone of that little bit of text is, um, well, when you see it, you'll know what I'm talking about. There's a moment in the middle where... They talk. They sort of do a fake, fake, and fake I end. hated that. I bit. thought I thought that was a work of genius. I hated. <laughs> I thought that was. I could argue with you from ages about that. Oh. I genuinely thought that was the moment in the film where I was like, "No, I'm done." Oh, interesting. And I did like. I mean, I'm not saying I did actually quite like the film, but mm. that middle bit that there's basically a fake ending, and it's done to play off smartly i think but to me it just came across as quite pretentious i see it's interesting it relates quite nicely to mary queen of scots in that we all know exactly what happened mm-hmm. with this um with dick cheney and his uh, time as the vice president and so it's never actually true that you think oh this is the end of the film this is how it ended mm-hmm. i feel like this is a i thought it was a very clever way of I don't know, it's very self-consciously a film, this film. Yes. I think there were parts of it where there were fourth wall breaking moments, there were bits like this little fake ending in the middle, little sort of nods to the filmmaking process built within it that I thought were, I, I thought they were quite cleverly done. And I can see why you wouldn't have liked that that particular moment, but... Um, but I thought it was very, very clever, and I, I thought it was quite funny. I thought the whole film was funny, but I do like quite black comedy. Yeah, we can agree to disagree on that middle Absolutely. bit. But there, there are other parts where, you know, I did think it was funny. Um, have you seen The Big Short? I haven't, was, Oh, no. okay, all right. So the kind of snapshotty style, mm. is how I would describe it, is quite similar to The Big Short. And for me, in The Big Short, it worked really well didn't work so well here. I think this goes back to my question on tone. Mm. Um, but you, I think you said you really liked the editing and how it was all sort of put together. Yes, I, I <laughs> again, I'm making bold predictions during this show. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to have egg on my face come um, Oscars time. I think this film will win Best Editing. Okay. Um, I, I think... No, I do. Sorry, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think um, the... Uh, the 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 moments that um that really brought it home for me were those moments where as i mentioned before he was making a decision you'd see the consequences or sort of the cutting back and forth between different timelines and and uh, uh yeah i just thought it was incredibly well put together as a film i thought the the writing was you know perfectly fine you mm-hmm. know i think he had a lot of work to do to um to uh, to get into the into the meat of what Dick Cheney really was as a person, yeah. because it's notoriously difficult to uh, to know that. Yeah. Um, 
Um, sorry, carry on. I was just going to say the other moment I really liked was the the Shakespearean soliloquy in the yes. middle. I just all I just thought it was very very yeah that, that was very good. funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think for me, it, perhaps it was a bit too stylized. Yeah, yeah. I, I can I, I can absolutely cop to that. But I still enjoyed it. I still think it's worth watching. And if you don't know, you know, how do you feel? But like, if you don't know about Dick Cheney. I guess it depends on, again, your political leanings, but mm. this might be quite a good film to just get a little understanding of that time and that, that yeah. area of politics. I don't know what you think about that. Absolutely. The, the, the world of, of American politics is, um, is a, a murky one and a, and a fascinating one. And I think this would be, well, I, I'd hesitate to call it a history because it's obviously <laughs> embellished and, um, and um, filtered through a, a particular lens, but... Um, yeah, it'd be interesting to know what someone who didn't know very much about that period thought of the film. I'm, I'm intrigued to find out. Can we get people to write into this show? Yeah. Is that, is that something send we can do? Send us a tweet. Do? Yeah, send us a tweet uh, or, or email studio at cambridge105.co.uk. Uh, let us know your thoughts on some of what we've talked about. Um, that would be really interesting. I think maybe we can come back in a couple of weeks and see what people say. I'll be please, here. Please send emails. <laughs> um, so, um, great. So, thank you very much, Rowan. Uh, Vice is also showing at all the three cinemas of Cambridge, the uh, Arts Picture House, View and Light Cinemas. It is a certificate 12A. Okay, and we're finishing off again with some uh, wonderful music from the You Were Never Really Here score. Again, we had a brief discussion on directors that weren't nom- female directors that weren't nominated at the Oscars. So this is Lynn Ramsey's uh, film, You Were Never Really Here, which I think anybody who's seen it would tell you to go and see it. It's wonderful. Um, but that is all we've got time for on today's show. As ever, we will be repeated tomorrow at two o'clock. And don't forget that there's also our podcast, which will be available to stream or download from iTunes. You can also listen to the show as well as months and months of previous editions via our page on the Cambridge 105 website. We are back in a couple of weeks on the 9th of February with another jam-packed treasure of film delights, including Melissa McCarthy's turn as writer Lee Israel in Can You Ever Forgive Me? Oscar-nominated, perhaps controversially apparently, Green Book, and the much-awaited follow-up from Moonlight director Barry Jenkins, If Beale Street Could Talk. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, reviewers. Have a wonderful weekend. And from all of us here, goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.